All right. We'll pick up tonight in Ezekiel chapter 8. And if things go according to plan, uh, we'll make it through chapter 11, which is good because 8, 9, 10, and 11 all uh, contain and pertain to a single visionary experience that Ezekiel has. As we mentioned in the introduction to this book, Ezekiel is a prophet of visions. Uh, And so his second major vision uh, occurs here. And notice we get another timestamp in the book, um, the second timestamp of the book, in fact, in chapter 8, verse 1. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. And so, uh, three pieces here. First, that date sets us about 14 months after the last date we received in the book, which again is just long enough for Ezekiel to have finished with some rest uh, his 390 uh, plus 40 day uh, performance art explanation of the coming siege and destruction of Jerusalem. And so it's sometime after that. And then notice he is in his house, but he is joined by what verse 1 calls the elders of Judah. And so these would have been lay leaders, you know, the, um, the equivalent of tribal chieftains, if you will, um, who would not have been part of the royal family or part of the priesthood, but representative of the clans across a known area. In this particular case, it's the elders of Judah. And remember, we're not in Judea. We're not near Jerusalem. We're all the way uh, in Babylon. And so these would be the representatives of the Jewish uh, exiles living in Babylon. Now, based on other passages where we find prophets in the company of such men, most likely they're here to inquire of the Lord. And so the idea here is they've come looking for God to speak to them. They know Ezekiel is his prophet. He's probably demonstrated that pretty clearly over the last 430 days. And so they come and they sit before him. And as he's there, he falls into a vision using that same language we saw earlier, that the hand of the Lord fell upon him. Verse 2, then I looked and behold a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. Now that should sound familiar to you. This is what he saw seated on the throne in his initial vision, his theophany, uh, appearance of God. And so the idea here is is human-like, but brightness uh, and flame Um, And not a lot of details, mostly just light. Verse 3, he put out the form of a hand and took me by the lock of my head and the spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. 
And so notice here, he sees a hand reach out and grab him by his hair and pick him up and he's carried away to Jerusalem. And it's important here to notice as well um, that this is seen as being a, a vision and not a reality. Uh, and so he's not like Philip, for example, in Acts chapter 8, just transported someone, somewhere else by the Spirit. But like John in the book of Revelation, he's transported in a visionary way to see things uh, beyond, uh, which I imagine is somewhat uh, awkward for those who are sitting there in his midst, you know. Um, there are similar passages where, like, for example, Peter, when he's seated on the rooftop in Acts chapter 9, where it says that Peter went into a trance. That language is not used here, uh, but, but it's almost as if uh, Ezekiel has an out-of-body experience. At the very least, in his inner mind, he has a vision as if he's transported to Jerusalem. Now remember... These Babylonian exiles are not the final exiles of Jerusalem. At this point, Jerusalem is still standing. Uh, Zedekiah is on the throne. The temple is still present, although it's been looted just slightly. It's missing some of its more gold and silver accoutrements that Jeconiah uh, were, excuse me, that were taken away during Jehoiachin's day. And so he's carried away, and it's almost as if he finds himself back home in the temple at Jerusalem. And so notice here, uh, it says, visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy which provokes to jealousy. Okay, and so he comes here, not even to the temple courts proper, but to the temple mount, to the, the palace courts that surround Solomon's temple. And as he gets to the north gate, he finds himself by what he calls the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. Now, all the way back in 2 Kings, during the days of evil king Manasseh, he had set up an idolatrous statue uh, to a pagan god here in the north gate. During the days of Josiah's reform, it had been removed. Okay. So here, the way he talks, he refers to the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. So at this point, it's appropriate for us to think he's probably just talking about the place where that st statue was once. Okay. But as we're going to see, that might be too optimistic. And then notice verse 4, Behold, the glory of God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the valley. Okay, and so he sees there the same appearance of God with the chariot wheels and the cherubim and the you know, lapis lazuli platform and the throne on top of it. That's what he means here by the glory of the Lord. Just like he saw in the valley, he sees here. And then the one who's seated on the throne says to him, verse 5, he said to me, son of man, lift up your eyes now towards the north. So I lifted my eyes towards the north, and behold, north of the altar gate, in the entrance, was this image of jealousy. Okay. And so here he's given a vision, and we're going to see it's an escalating vision, and it escalates in two ways. One, it moves through the temple from the outer ring, if you will, of the temple, towards the inner courts of the temple itself. 
Two, it moves from a, uh, a, we'll call it a lesser abomination, to greater and greater horrors of religious proportions. And so it begins here, and it appears that this idol from Manasseh's day that was torn down into the days of Josiah has been replaced or rebuilt. And uh, because it is facing to the north, it may even be that this God was seen as being posted like a lookout to protect them from danger. You may remember from our studies in Jeremiah and even the opening language of the book of Ezekiel, from the north is where all the destruction comes from in the Bible, whether it's through the Assyrians or through Babylon or even when you get to the book of Revelation, that language maintains it's from the north. Uh, that Jerusalem is threatened. It's from the north that uh, Nebuchadnezzar just came in and took Jehoiachin and deported all these people. And so they've set up this, uh, this false god as a form of protection overlooking this, the temple and the city because the temple is in the corner uh, of the city. Um, and so that is striking and surprising this is my people, God says, in my city. This is my house, and yet you've set up a God to worship who is not me. Okay. And so uh, this is the first thing Ezekiel says, and notice commentary verse 6. He said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary but you will see greater abominations still. And so scene one closes, he has this vision, and in the end of it, there's an ominous tone. We're just getting started. This is not even the worst of it. Verse seven, and he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And then he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. Okay, so notice this vision becomes interactive. And as he gets in a lair, into uh, closer to the temple itself, there's a small hole in the wall, and the voice tells him to dig it out. Okay. Now, um, we have no reason to believe that this vision doesn't allow you know, for transportation through walls or these types of things. Why does he have to dig his way in? It's not about inaccessibility. It's about hiddenness. Okay. There's something voyeuristic about what Ezekiel does here. He's seeing things that are not supposed to be seen. As we'll see, what he's about to see is happening literally behind closed doors. And so he is given a way to look through, but it, it has that sense of hiddenness. In fact, notice what he finds, verse 8. He said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall. And behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in. And see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping thing and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And so he gets into this room, and the room is covered with engravings. Now, remember two things. 
One, according to the Old Testament law, Israel was to have no graven images in worship, and that included not just what you might think of in like a physical idol, a statue, but also a picture, an engraving that was used for worship. Two, remember that the tabernacle and the temple itself did have engravings, but they were, uh, they were of cherubim, and they were of pomegranates, uh, and they were of palm trees. These things are mentioned by name. The issue was not that they couldn't have any sort of pictography, pictures of anything, but they weren't to use them in worship. But here in this chamber is basically, uh, as we're going to see, an incense altar set up to all sorts of gods uh, represented animalistically in these engravings. Uh, and then notice the room is not empty, verse 11, and before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah the son of Shaphan standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. And so what they are doing here is actively worshiping through incense, just like what uh, was used at the altar of incense in the holy place, uh, here they are worshiping before these images, uh, and notice here it's the 70 elders, okay? Like we saw earlier, the ones who are sitting with Ezekiel back in Babylon, these are lay leaders of the people, representative of a large swath of the important people of Jerusalem. And here they are uh, worshiping in the dark, hidden away from others, uh, these images uh, with incense. In fact, we have one named by name, a Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Now, it would be completely appropriate and not without precedent for Ezekiel to call out by name a real historical person who he saw in the vision just because he saw him in the vision. But there's a second thing that makes this significant. Jazaniah is the son of Shaphan. Okay? We've actually met three sons of Shaphan this far in the story, most of them back in the book of Jeremiah. The reason why that's especially significant is because his father, Shaphan, was involved in the restoration of Jerusalem and the worship of Jehovah under Josiah. He was there when the scroll was found in the temple. He was involved in a revival of Israel, and yet just a generation later, one of his children is here with the 70 elders worshiping these abominations. Now, this room, this chamber, you shouldn't be thinking of this happening in the holy place or even worse, the holy of holies. This is a side chamber, okay, which were used for storage and for other things, but it's been converted quietly and clearly hiddenly into a place of idolatrous worship. And then notice verse 12, then the voice, he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. So notice they have a reasoning behind why they've set this up, not a reasoning to go public with, right? I, I want to suggest to you that the motive of these men is, look, for the greater good of all the people, we need to do this, but they don't need to know about it. 
okay? And so this is quietly and almost conspiratorially going on. They've hidden themselves in the dark places, but they haven't just, they think, hidden themselves from the populace, but also from God himself. Listen to their reasoning here. The Lord does not see us, for they say uh, he has forsaken the land. There's two possibilities here. One is because God didn't deliver them from Babylon sacking the city the first time, they are saying the Lord does not see us as in the Lord didn't see us in distress and do something about it. In other words, we're on our own here. We need to find our own solutions and salvations. God did not see us like he saw, for example, Hagar when Ishmael was dying under a bush. Remember, she, she calls him the one who sees He saw me in my distress, the psalmist says. It may be in that sense. Or the other possibility is that they believe that God has forsaken Jerusalem because he didn't protect them. And since he's gone, they can get away with these things. Now, that might sound like a strange thought to us um, being built upon the foundation of the Bible in a modern view of God's omnipotence and omnipresence and omniscience You know, this idea that they could escape God uh, seems strange to us, but in their day, the religions around them, the Babylonians, the Canaanites, the Egyptians, all believed that there was a localization to their gods. Not that the gods were actually tied to those places, um, but they were nationalized, and they kept their eyes focused in the places that they were looking. And so it may be just that their understanding of who the true God is has fallen to a view of like the other gods. And so if, if God is not present here, then we're no longer, you know, we're no longer being watched and we can get away with it. What's more important for us tonight is the irony of this statement. Okay. Uh, and it's ironic for a couple of reasons. First, when they say the Lord does not see, he clearly does. Right? He knows exactly the address of where this is going down. He doesn't even have to use the front door. He just comes through the back door and shows Ezekiel, his prophet, what is happening from thousands of miles away. Okay. But second, whether you read this as the Lord did not see our distress and do something about it, that is false. God absolutely saw what the Judeans were doing, and that's why he brought the Babylonians in their judgment. It was in response to what he saw in Jerusalem, just like in Sodom and Gomorrah. In Sodom and Gomorrah, God says, I have heard the cries coming up about the injustice in Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to go see for myself, right? Um, And so God's sight is often tied to his judgment. And in that case, God absolutely saw what they were doing, not just what they're doing now, but what had led to that destruction Um, But there's a final irony here, and that's the fact that all of these images and all of these idols that they're worshiping quietly in the dark, from a biblical perspective, are the ones who truly can't see. This is the great critique of of the Psalms and of Isaiah, is that the gods of other nations represented by these little stone idols uh, are so well represented Because just like that stone idol has a mouth but cannot speak, neither can your gods. And just like those idols have eyes, they do not see you, right? And so in a sense, God is the only one who sees because he is the only real God. And so they have forsaken the truth 
for a lie, as Paul would put it in the book of Romans. They have denied the one thing that only God can do and foolishly attributed the one thing that idols can't do, anything, uh, to them, and that makes for part of the horror of what's going on here. <coughs> now again, in the first one, we just saw a statue set up. No context. It's outside of the temple. Now we're into the temple grounds, and there are these things set up there, and we have the representative leadership of the current residents of Jerusalem worshiping there in the dark. But notice, again, the ominous statement in verse 13. He said also to me, you will see still greater abominations that they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. Okay, so right now, this is the front door of the temple. Okay, the temple courts where the altars would be set up for sacrifices. And there in the temple, behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz was a Babylonian god uh, who was believed to have been died, who, who had believed to have died under judgment. And so every, uh, every summer they would follow the seasons of harvest and they would weep for the death of Tammuz, uh, effectively grieving life back into the earth, effectively pushing the cycle from the end of harvest back to the time of spring. Okay. Now, it is worth pointing out here that traditionally this practice of weeping for Tammuz happens in a different month than the month this vision is happening in. Okay. It's off by almost two full months. Okay. So that suggests one of two things. Either, um, uh, either the Jews are just taking any practice they can find, not even having knowledge of it, and just incorporating it into their own worship. Or more likely, what Ezekiel is seeing here is not a single moment in time vision, contemporary to his actual time of having the vision far away in Babylon. In other words, if we were standing in Jerusalem in the sixth month of the sixth year, on the fifth day, exactly while Ezekiel was having this vision, we wouldn't necessarily see all these things going on simultaneously. Okay. It may be here that what he's seeing is the whole reality of what's going on um, and not, not the, the moment by moment play by play. But either way, this idolatrous practice is taking place right in the temple itself. And again, we have the same question and statement in verse 15. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? You will still see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord between the porch and the altar. Okay, so right at the front door of the holy place were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east worshiping the sun. So notice here, not only are they, um, not only are they worshiping the sun, but they're doing it with God's holy place, the place where His presence dwells, the holy of holy, the ark of the covenant, to their backs. Okay, uh, and so it's it's tremendously offensive, and of course, as you can imagine, 
Israel is warned not to worship the sun, moon, and stars. These are all pagan practices taken broadly. If you piece things together, um, we, we have a pretty good representation from Egyptian religion, from Canaanite religion, and Babylonian religion, all coexisting in the temple. Okay? The temple at this point has become a marketplace of competing religious ideas and a smorgasbord of possibilities. Um, but, but if the Bible were to give it a, a single word definition, it's just sold out idolatry. And it's happening uh, in the temple that was set apart for God. Verse 17, then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? And so he says, not only that, but there's injustice in the land. And he'll come back to that a little bit later in the vision. Here it's just left to rest. And then we have one of the hardest things we need to try and understand tonight. It says at the end of there, verse 17, behold, they put the branch to their nose. Okay. Now, your translation might say, behold, they put the branch up my nose. We, we don't really know the right way to parse this. And the reason is because none of them make a lot of sense to us. However, there are some predictions pretty significant Egyptian and Babylonian iconography of worshipers before gods with branches held up to their faces. Now, it doesn't mean that it's what's being talked about here, but that would make sense. It would basically be like these ones who have turned their back to the holy of holy places and are worshiping the sun, that they are right in the presence of God going through these religious Practices. Uh, imagine an idolatrous version of genuflection, flexion, flexion, right? Genuflection is when you make the sign of the cross. It's a way um, to evoke God's presence uh, it, from a Catholic and an Orthodox understanding. But put the branch to their nose may have been a, another religion's version of the same thing. And so he says, this is going on, verse 18, therefore... I will act in wrath. My eye, remember the one that supposedly doesn't see, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity, and though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Okay. So, going back, we can reverse engineer this a little bit. Earlier we mentioned the fact that these men, these elders of Judea, have come and sat down in Ezekiel's house and they're looking for God to speak. What are they looking for? What is the answer they're interested in? Well, based on what we know from the book of Jeremiah, there were prophets in Babylon preaching to the exiled Jews saying it's only a matter of time and God will bring us back into Jerusalem and put Jehoiachin back on the throne and everything's going to be fine. And so it may be here that this vision is given to Ezekiel to show him that everything is not fine. There are occasions, if you look in Leviticus chapter 26, for example, or the tail end of the book of Deuteronomy, where God talks about escalatory discipline. If you do not repent, then plan B. And then if you don't repent, then plan C. Or if you look in the book of Joel, Joel comes and he says, God has sent plague after plague of locusts upon us, and he's been trying to get our attention 
And if we don't repent, the next plague will not be a plague of locusts, but a plague of men, speaking of the Babylonians. Right? That escalation process is going on. And so what we find here is that back in Jerusalem, God's disciplinary act, if you will, of bringing the Babylonians in has not brought about repentance, but in some ways has made them double down on their idolatry. In fact, we saw this extensively in the book of Jeremiah. And so the exiles in Babylon shouldn't be hoping in God seeing and hearing their prayers and fixing things because of what God is seeing and hearing in Jerusalem, which is the worship of other gods and the filling of the land with violence. Okay. So stepping back in the vision, he has this four-part tour of the temple, sees all of the abominable practices going on, and then chapter 9, verse 1. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. So he hears a voice summoning uh, what's labeled here as the executioners of the city. Six men armed with swords come through the north gate and come all the way up to the bronze altar where Ezekiel is standing. Remember, he's right in front of the holy, uh, holy place. And then also one guy who's armed with a pen and not a sword. He just has a scroll, some ink, and a writing kit um, with him. Okay. Now notice again, they come from the north. And when Babylon comes in for the final time, that's where they'll come from. Verse 3, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. Going all the way back to the beginning of the, uh, of the, the worship in Solomon's temple. It's dedication in 1 Kings chapter 8. Okay. Solomon lays out the plans for the temple. He executes it. He builds it. And on the day of dedication, he addresses both the people and God himself. And while he's praying... It says that the temple was filled with the glory of the Lord and with smoke so that the priests couldn't even go about what they were doing. They're run out of the temple by this presence. Okay. If you go back to the tabernacle, you find the same thing. In fact, this idea here of the presence coming up above the Holy of Holies and being above it, that's how in the wandering through the wilderness, that's how Israel knew it was time to break camp and move forward. Okay? And so we see the same thing here, but that's a little bit strange. right? In fact, it's a little bit ominous. Where is the presence of God going? Now, you may notice here, it says, verse 3, The glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. Now, this is one of those places where things can get confusing. So, remember two things here. First, we have these, these angelic beings, which he'll call cherubs, cherubim here in this chapter. Um, but also in the temple, we have some representations, some statuesque representations of cherubs. Okay. Now, if you remember the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant has two angels bowing with their wings touching, built into its uh, top piece, into its lid. But in the temple, Solomon actually built 
uh, two big angels in the holy of holy places overarching with their wings touching, okay, and looking down at the ark. It was part of the architecture. Um, think 10 feet tall, okay, large gold statues. It's these cherubim that it's talking about, the presence coming up above, out of the holy place um, here. And then notice, uh, he goes to the threshold of the house, to the front door, if you will, and he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So before the executioner starts, first a job is given to the, the scribe, the one with the writing implements. And he's told to go through the city and to mark everyone who's going to be spared from destruction. And they're named here those who sigh uh, and groan over the abominations. Okay. The ones who aren't wholly given over to the idolatry but hate the fact that this is happening, grieve the loss of Israel's faithfulness. They're all to be marked with a sign on their forehead. Now, when we read this, it should draw your attention to two places in the Bible, one in the very beginning and one at the very end. Okay. First, off, this, first off, this language here, used for sign and passing over, should draw your attention back to the Passover in the book of Exodus, right? where those who the angel of death passes over are the ones who have the sign on their doorpost of blood. Uh, and then when the angel passes over, it brings judgment and death. But the other place that you should be thinking of is in the book of Revelation. Okay? Before this beast character in the book of Revelation, uh, who, who not only dominates world politics, but also sets himself up as the one true God to be worshipped. This character in the book of Revelation he has a sign, a mark of the beast, the number being 666, uh, through, uh, without which no one can buy or sell. Okay? That's the biblical language without the interpretation of what those things might mean. But before that persecution of those who won't take the mark of the beast begins, before that whole plan is laid out, a chapter before, God sends angels like this scribe out to mark on the forehead 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe to be protected. Okay. Now, it's, it's worthwhile to take all three of those and ponder on the commonalities and the differences. In the book of Exodus, that protection is for God's people during judgment on their oppressors. But here it is God's people who the judgment is going to fall upon and only a remnant who will be spared. Here, uh, this is the judgment of God coming upon Jerusalem and its inhabitants. In the book of Revelation, it's the persecution of the beast against the Jews of which he will protect. And so, to some degree, what happens in Exodus and what happens in Revelation has a lot more commonality than what happens here. This is almost an antitype of those two. It's almost the opposite of those things. But they're clearly all connected. Okay. 
Now, it's worth pointing out that when it says here, put a mark on their foreheads, that word there for mark is not the word for mark, it's a Jewish letter. Uh, it's the Jewish letter that looks like our letter T. Okay. And so some commentators, Origen being the most significant one, have made a big deal out of that. Look, there's a protective cross on the foreheads of all those who are going to be spared. It's probably overreaching. However, there is a clear recognition here of what Abraham promises or calls God to remember back in Sodom and Gomorrah. Will not the Lord of the earth do rightly? Will he truly judge the righteous with the wicked? That's the one thing that all three of these places have in common, okay? That God is making a separation and that he is allowing, uh, you know, the evil circumstances of persecution, judgment, destruction, death, uh, only on those who do not bear the mark. And for those, he promises protection. Now, there's one other thing to notice here. Here, this command is given, but we're not going to be told how many receive the sign, if any. He's just to go looking. Okay. And so, we're left to wonder, who does he find? In fact, Ezekiel is going to be provoked pretty soon to saying, will anybody be left? But he also gives command to the other six, those who bear swords. Look at verse uh, 5. He, the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women. But touch no one on whom is the mark. Now, why does it illustrate with, uh, with those particular categories, Okay old men outright, young men, maidens, little children, and women, okay? Because collectively it means everybody, the old and the young, men and the women, adults and children, okay? In other words, what's envisioned here is a total judgment on the people except for the ones who bear the mark. And then notice here he says, and begin at my sanctuary, so they began with the elders who were before the house. They began right in the midst uh, of this idolatrous worship and flow out to the city. Then he said to them, verse 7, defile the house and fill the courts with slain. If you remember going back to the book of Leviticus, encountering the dead, whether stumbling upon a corpse in a field or attending a funeral, was something that made you ritually unclean. Okay. It wasn't a moral issue, uh, but it had to do with recognizing the di difference between the God of life and his intentions for creation, which were life intentions, and the reality of death. Okay. And so what happens then when death happens in the holy place, in the temple itself? There's a defiling that happens. What was sacred becomes profane, okay? In fact, we read earlier in Ezekiel and God promised to do this to all the high places where idols were being worshiped. The dead of Israel would die on their high places and it would desecrate these pagan altars. But here it's his temple that's going to be desecrated with the body of his people. That's what it means when it says defile the house. So they went out and struck in the city and while they were striking, I was left alone 
And I fell upon my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? So notice here, he's afraid there will be nothing left. He's afraid that they've reached the end of God's patience, that after all the intercession of Moses, all of the intercession of God's prophets, that finally God is done with Israel and they're all going to be destroyed. But remember, Ezekiel's not in Jerusalem. The elders who are awaiting his answer sitting in his house are not in Jerusalem. There's this whole portion there His concern here is not the end of all Jews. His concern seems to be the end of what he calls here the remnant. And as we'll see, that comes back. It's almost as if Ezekiel thinks, well, it's all lost for us living out in Babylon. But Jerusalem still stands. There's still Israelites there. And you may remember in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah has a vision of two baskets and fruit. One of them is filled with good figs, sweet and tasteful. And the other is filled with rotten figs. And then surprisingly, he says, Jeremiah, the good figs are the ones in Babylon. All we have left in Jerusalem is the rotten figs. He says, the good figs I have good plans for, the rotten figs I'm going to throw out. It may be here, early in Ezekiel's ministry, he doesn't recognize God's plan for the remnant is those already in Babylon. He may have bought into the conventional wisdom that says anyone who was taken captive is clearly a wicked person. Anyone who was spared is clearly righteous. And so his worry here is that God's final remnant has been tainted, corrupted, and therefore is going to be destroyed. We're going to see that idea comes up again. But like we saw with Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel cares for his brothers and sisters, his family, his nation. And he's overwhelmed by the judgment here. Verse 9, Then he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood, and the city full of injustice. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will drink bring their deeds upon their heads. And so notice God's first answer here. Before he says, relax, I've got another plan. Before he says, there's hope. Before he says, there will be a remnant, and I promise you that, he says, the sentence is just. The judgment is deserved. Notice the language there. It says that the land is full of blood and the city is full of injustice. Going all the way back to the Pentateuch, when God brings judgment on the Canaanites, or on Sodom and Gomorrah, he uses this language of fullness. In fact, he tells Abraham that uh, Israel is going to tarry in Egypt for 400 years because the, uh, the um, wrath, the sin, there we go, the sin of the Canaanites is not yet full. Okay. And so here, it's, it is the end of God's patience. It is the filling you know, of a bucket of wickedness to overflowing here and having to be dealt with, okay? Verse 11, and behold, the man clothed in linen with the writing case at his waist brought back word saying, I have done as you have commanded me. So God speaks clearly about the justice, but there is a glimmer of hope here, right? The, before the executioners go through, the man with, this, with the writing kit 
has gone through and returns and says, I did what you asked me to. Again, we're not given numbers. We're not told that he marked a single forehead, but his presence here gives us reason for hope, gives Ezekiel reason for hope. And we'll see that as we move into chapter 9, or excuse me, as we move into chapter 10, we're going to build upon that idea. Then, chapter 10, verse 1, I looked and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, Now, these would be the charioteer cherubim that we encountered in chapter 1. We were told there was an expanse of kind of blue and turquoise above them. And he says, above the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like sapphire, in appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, going among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim, fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And so now the scribe, after he's done his job marking, is told to reach into this area between the cherubim where the wheels are, and apparently there's, there's coals there. You may remember it talked about not just the presence of fire, but lightning jumping from point to point in this area. And the angel goes in, and he takes out these hot coals, and he throws them over the city. Okay. Obviously being a picture of the destruction of the city itself, like the fire and brimstone related with Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, he went in before my eyes, verse 3. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. So notice what happens here. This chariot is parked on the south side of the temple. God's presence has come up above the holy of holies, and now it's moved and taken its seat in the chariot. God is on the move. Verse 6, And when he commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from between the whirling wheels, from uh, between the cherubim, He went in and stood beside a wheel, and a cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim, and took some of it, put it in the hands of the man in clothed linen, who took it and went out. And the cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings. One of the things that's always struck me about Ezekiel's visions is the way that he records details has eyewitness testimony characteristics. He just takes the time here as he's watching this action to notice that under the wings of the angels they reach out their arms and they have hands like we do. It seems almost awkwardly put there. It doesn't add anything to the stable, uh, add anything to the story. It's not there to convey anything. It's just Ezekiel telling us what he saw. It's similar to somebody who witnesses a hit and run. And as they're talking to the cops, uh, you know, it's laying out the course of the accident, um, but it always has those eyewitness irrelevant details. You know, um, I had just come from the coffee shop, uh, and, and uh, you know, I remember I had my Americano in my hand, and I looked up, and I saw this car and this car, and as they were coming against each other, they crashed. And there was a dog barking in the park. You know, there are always details that are irrelevant. And it's interesting to me that when Ezekiel writes here, it has those places where they're not pertinent details to the story, 
but they are vivid. They help paint the picture. It's as if he's recalling this as he's writing down what happened. And we encounter that with the reference to their hands there. Verse 9, and as I looked, behold, there were four wheels besides the cherubim, one beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling barrel, very white. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness as if a wheel were within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. But whenever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And their whole body, their rims and their spokes and their wings and the wheels were full of eyes all around and the wheels that the four of them had. And so again here, he just reiterates the same description that we saw from chapter 1. Um, he treats the wheels and the cherubim as if they're all in one thing. In fact, listen to that language again. And their whole body, their rims and spokes, their wings and the wheels were full of eyes around. Okay, and so that's a new detail. We were told the wheels were covered with eyes in the first time. And now he says, now I see that they were entirely covered with eyes. And again, that might be literal eyes or it might be uh, some sort of decorative reality that is eye-like. Um, many of the old Mishnah explanations of the angelic realm always leaves angels encrusted with gems. So maybe that's the idea here. Um, but either way, again, um, what we see is Ezekiel doing his best to describe this thing that is tremendously otherworldly okay, in its locomotion, uh, in, in the way that it's put together. In fact, notice he gives us another detail, verse 13. As for the wheels, they were called in my hearing the whirling wheels. And everyone had four faces. The first was the face of a cherub. The second was a face of a human face. The third, the face of a lion. And the fourth, the face of an eagle. It's just like the vision in chapter 1. These cherubim have four faces. In fact, they're given in the same order. Okay, So this one starts... Uh, and this is really fascinating to me. But based on where he is when he has his first vision versus where he is, because we know where he, he is, right? He's by the front doors of the temple, and this thing is parked to the south of him. They're in the right order for him to be on the opposite side. Okay? Remember that in chapter 1, he told us they never turn. They just move in the direction that their faces are facing. And so here we find him, as we should, on a different side, and when he walks around the order of the faces, he names them in the same order. However, as, uh, as accurate as that is, there is a difference here. The order is the same, but here it says, instead of the face like an ox, we have a face like a cherub. Now, I think you and I, because when we think of cherubs, and again, whether it's fat little cupid cherubs or traditional angel cherubs, we think of the face of an angel being the human face. We just naturally make that connection. In fact, a lot of times when angels show up on the pages of Scripture, what do they look like? Just really bright people, right? Men clothed in linen, linen with brightness. So what does he mean here when he says the face of a cherub? Well, if we want to read the passages together, it must be the ox-like face. But we don't really know why he uses the different language here. Uh, or, or if there's a, a, a significance in these differences. He doesn't spend any time there. He's just describing. Verse 15. The cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Chibar Canal. Okay, No escaping. Same creatures. It's not a different iteration or a version of them. The same ones. 
Verse 16, And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. When the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. When they stood still, these stood still. When they mounted up, these mounted up with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings, and they mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out, and the wheels beside them, and they stood at the entrance of the east gate to the house of the Lord. The glory of the God of Israel was over them. Okay. In the same way that Ezekiel's initial vision has phases. And so he starts at the south gate and he moves further and further in until he gets to the holy place. Now he has a vision that also works in phases as the presence of God moves further and further out towards the east. Okay? And so there's, there's, a, um, there's a suitedness or a symmetry to what happens in this vision but don't miss the theological importance here. God is abandoning the temple. He's moving out. He's moving on. Um, and so here, the glory of the Lord has moved up and out of the holy places. It's taken its place on the throne. Okay. Um, and then verse... 20, these were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Chebar Canal, and I knew that they were the cherubim. Each had four faces and each four wings, and underneath their wings the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the Chebar Canal. Each one of them went straight forward. Now there's one last piece of that as we move forward, but it's interrupted by another layer. You may remember last week we looked at this performance art prophecy that Ezekiel did and we talked about how both there were a lot of things going on in the prophecy and it was representing a lot of things simultaneously. In the same way this vision is suddenly interwoven and so we're going to see not just God's departation but also judgment and the wickedness that provoked it all kind of overlapping. And that's the thing about visions, right? They don't have to honor chronology uh, or time and space generally. Uh, they can show the significant connectedness of things that don't seem to be so close in space or time. And so chapter 11, verse 1, The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east. So now he's by this heavenly chariot. And behold, at the entrance of the gateway, there were 25 men. And I saw among them Jazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, princes of the people. So most likely, this is the same 25 elders we saw worshiping privately and quietly in the dark room. And now they're outside the temple. And as they're standing there, you know, Ezekiel is up above them. And not only does he see Jazaniah again, um, but he also names another one, Pelatiah here, the son of Benaniah. Um, now, two things. Um, sorry, first off, not the same Jazaniah here. Okay. Uh, even from the records we have from, uh, from the late period of Israel's history, uh, Jazaniah is a popular name. So is Pelatiah, interestingly enough. Um, but notice this is not Jazaniah, son of Shaphan, but of uh, Azur. Now, maybe this is another person that Ezekiel recognizes and knows and is significant, and he's calling him out 
for his idolatrous worship, even in this vision. But there's another reason why this is interesting, and it's because the name Jazaniah, which has now shown up twice in the vision, means that the Lord hears. And as we've seen, the Lord does hear. But when Jazaniah was given that name as a kid, it was the Lord hears our cries for help. The Lord hears and answers our prayers. But here, he's with the men who said the Lord does not see. And the Lord has heard their worship and their idolatry and will respond to it. Okay. So he sees these, and then notice Ezekiel, for the first time, becomes a participant and not just an observer. Verse 2, he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel in the city, who say the time is not near to build houses. The city is the cauldron and we are the meat. Therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. So notice, these ones are called out not specifically here for idolatry, but for injustice, for giving wicked counsel and pursuing their own ends. We'll see more of that in what follows. But what they say aloud here involves us to camp for a second and do a little bit of interpretation. First off, notice that they, what they say is, the time is not near to build houses. Um, the word time is not in that Hebrew sentence. It's been added to try and make sense. What it literally says is, not near build houses. That's the whole of the Hebrew sentence. And so the idea is maybe they were suggesting it's not the time to build right now. But we don't really understand what that might mean. However, if what they're actually saying is it's not for those who are near to build houses, which would be another way to fill in you know, this very sparse Hebrew phrase, it's not for those who are near to build houses, they may be responding to Jeremiah's prophecy back in Jeremiah chapter 11, or in chapter 29, okay? So in Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah writes a letter to the people that Ezekiel lives with, those who were exiled in Babylon during the days of Zedekiah. And he gives them this instruction, settle down and build houses. Let your sons and your daughters marry Pray for the city where you live and seek its welfare, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, when we look at that, that makes sense for those still in Jerusalem to go, let those who are far away go ahead and keep Jeremiah's uh, you know, counsel, but that's not for us. right? In other words, they might be sliding Jeremiah's prophecy, because remember, these are the good folks, the ones who still live in Jerusalem. These are the faithful, the true, the remnant. Okay. In fact, notice what they say. They say, the city is the cauldron. We are the meat. Now, a natural reading of that is hard to read as positive, but it must be. Right? We read that, and it's like, okay, so you're being cooked. It's a dangerous place to be the entree. Right? But this is somehow a badge of honor. So here's what I would suggest. They see themselves as the choice portion. Most of us get our meat already butchered. And so at most, maybe you trim off a little extra fat or whatever that strange skin is that, that uh, you find on poultry, you know, the, the silver skin or whatever it's called, the stuff that's not edible. But when you butcher an animal, there's a whole lot that doesn't go into the pot, including the offal, right? The, the organs and, and all of the gross bits. So it may be that this saying is basically saying, 
we're the only edible Jews. Everybody else is the castaways, right? Here we are in the cauldron that proves we are the entree of God's faithful people. Now we're going to see, God's going to turn that image on its head, but I would suggest that's the best way to understand this. So they go, don't worry about the exiles. And at the same time, we're all right, we're fine, but simultaneously, what are they doing again in verse 2? They're devising iniquity and giving wicked counsel. Okay? So they're not just self-righteous, they're hypocrites. They're proclaiming that they are the faithful and the righteous of God, but that's not who they really are. Verse 5, And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me. Okay. So Ezekiel's not given a blank check. He doesn't just get to call out and say whatever he wants. But he does become an active participant and the word of the Lord comes upon him and he speaks. And here he tells him what to say. Thus says the Lord, so you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind, right? It's not just what they do in their actions that God sees, but what they think in their minds that God is aware of. And he says, you have multiplied your slain in this city and have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in the midst of it, they are the meat, and this city is the cauldron, but you shall be brought out of the midst of it. Again, this parallels some of the words of Jeremiah. He accuses the leaders of Israel for predatorial practices, and he does so in cannibalistic terms. He says, you are devouring the poor. You are consuming them. And he goes, all right, you want to talk about a cauldron and meat? The only meat I see are the slain and the corpses of the lives that you've ruined with your injustice. And he says, and because of that meat, I'm going to dump the pot. You're all going to come out of it. Okay. Verse 8, you have feared the sword, and I will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord God. And I will bring you out of the midst of it and give you into the hands of foreigners, and execute judgments upon you. All things that they didn't think was going to happen to them, right? Because they were the good Jews. Verse 10, you shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in the midst of it. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. Now notice here, there's two simultaneous and separate issues in this vision. There's the idolatrous worship of other gods, and then there's the unjust behaviors of other people. And we always find the two together. They go hand in hand. In fact, <clears throat> I would suggest to you that all idolatry... All vertical sin always leads to and accomplishes horizontal sin. Okay? That when we worship idols, whatever it is we elevate and say, this will give me significance, this will give me power, this will keep me safe, whatever it is, it always demands a sacrifice. But because idols promise our well-being, guess who the only one who's never on the altar is? Us. And we will find other things to put up on the altar. We will find other people who become either vehicles to manipulate to get what we want or obstacles standing in the way of what we want. 
and the two go hand in hand. Okay. Only the worship of the true God keeps us in the place of being truly human. And only that demands an equal understanding of other people and not an elevation of ourselves. Because when we worship idols, we become the chosen ones. The one true faithful and everyone else is outside the loop. In fact, for us as Christians, this idea of justification by faith, the fact that Jesus paid our penalty and lived out the life of obedience that we never have and freely offers that out of God's grace and we just receive it as a gift. That, more than any other thing, changes the way we treat other people because we can make no distinction between us and them in terms of deserts and what we deserve. We have to recognize that God's goodness to us was a gift and that makes you generous. You have to recognize that what God has done for you uh, was despite your own wickedness and that makes you softer with the sins of others. You have to recognize that God has forgiven you and that makes you a forgiver. Okay? And so um, it is only the worship of the true God that leads to righteous relationships on earth and over and over again in the prophets we find these things paired together. And so he calls them out not just for their idolatry, but also their injustice. And he says, you're all going to be dragged out of the city. You're all going to come under judgment. Verse 13, and it came to pass while I was prophesying that Pedaliah, the son of Benaniah, died. Okay. So in the vision, as he speaks these words, imagine Pedaniah down beneath and he just clutches his heart and he drops to the ground and he drops down dead. Now, significantly, this serves a couple of purses, uh, purposes. First off, it's a portent, okay? Not important, a portent, okay? A sign of things to come. It is the first fruits of judgment. But also, it is probably operating here as a validation of Ezekiel's ministry. Because remember, when he's having this vision, he's thousands of miles away, and when he comes out of the vision in just a second and tells the elders these things... He's going to say, by the way, Petaliah is dead. It's going to take months for word to reach them. And when it does, it will validate Ezekiel's vision and his words and the coming judgment. Okay. But notice how Ezekiel responds seeing this happen. Then I fell down on my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Ah, oh, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? Same statement he made earlier. If this is what you have for the elders, what's to follow? But again, it may be that he sees those in Jerusalem as the remnant. And so notice what God tells him here in verse 14. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said. Okay, so notice he says, your immediate family, your extended family, and the rest of those in exile are the ones whom Jerusalem has said, look here, go far from the Lord. To us, this land is given for a possession. Do you see how that validates what we saw earlier? Earlier they said, this message is not for those who are near. 
And now we find out they're the ones who called those in exile those who were far. Not just far away, like you have those relatives on the East Coast, but far away from God. Right? He says, that's been their accusation, that you are the ones that are far away. Ezekiel, you, your household, all of those living in Babylon are far from the Lord. Therefore, verse 16, uh, say, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far off from among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. So notice he says, I've been a sanctuary, and then it adds for a while. It may be the best way to read this is, I will be to them a temporary sanctuary. Okay. Now, recognize that language does two things. Sanctuary, even in our modern meaning, carries the idea of protection. Right? But also, it's temple imagery. And where does he promise to be a sanctuary? In Babylon, of all places. In fact, this makes sense of Ezekiel's initial vision. Because where did he see the presence of God and the throne of the Lord in the midst of the chariot? Right there, over the Chabar River in Babylon. Okay? Now, if you will, he gets kind of the backstory of what's going on, and he sees the significance of that. God is with the people in Babylon, and it's not because they are righteous. It's because they are repentant, okay? which again is things that Jeremiah makes clear. And so he says, I will be a sanctuary for a little while in the country where they've gone, verse 17. Therefore, say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. He says, you who've already been exiled, I'm going to bring you home. Now, you may remember from the tail end of Jeremiah, that's not what happens to those in Jerusalem. Very few of them end up being deported. Most of them are killed. Some of them are left, the poorest of the poor, to stay behind in Jerusalem. And they end up in Egypt, right? And their story dies out with Jeremiah. But with these people, he says, there's a future here. There's a plan and a promise. And to put it in broader language... Again, it's through exile that there's hope. Okay. And so he says, I'm going to bring you back and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. They're going to come in like a cleanup crew. They're going to remove the idolatrous statues. And they're going to take down the high places and they're going to start fresh. In fact, not only that, verse 19, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And so he says here, I'm going to be working within them. I'll put my spirit in them. That will come back later in Ezekiel. He says, I'm going to do a heart operation and I'm going to take this stubborn, calcitrant, resistant heart that won't hear or obey me and I'm going to remove it and replace it with a beating, soft, life-giving heart. Verse 20, so that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. And again, let me remind you that this is part of the new covenant, the new thing that God is doing and this is what's available for us in Jesus Christ. Not just a fresh start, okay, but new life. Not just a second attempt, but an invigoration of God's own enablement to follow him, to obey him. And so what God is doing in us is not 
waiting until we're righteous enough to save us, but saving us and making us righteous. And that's the work that Paul says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Do you realize how different that sentence is than the religious thinking we usually have? If what I've begun I'm capable of completing, then God will be faithful to me. But who's the actor in that verse of Paul's letter to the Philippians? He who began the work, God himself, will be faithful to complete the work, God himself. God is the alpha and omega, the finisher as well as the beginner of our salvation. That's why Paul asks the Galatians, having begun in the spirit, having been given that new heart, having had God do the, the thing that was necessary for salvation, he says, will you now be perfected in the flesh? Is it now up to you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make righteousness happen? But these are the promises that Ezekiel gives. It's the new thing that God's going to do after the second exodus, after the exile. Okay. And they shall be my people and I will be their God, which was the goal of the original covenant. Verse 21, but as for those whose hearts go after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord. And so he says, there's hope for you in the remnant, but as for those in Jerusalem who are still actively worshiping idols, there's still judgment for them. Then, verse 22, the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city, Geographically, that's what we call Mount Olives, uh, the Mount of Olives, okay? And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. So the last thing he sees, the presence of God has fully left, not just the temple, but the city itself, and is on the very borders of the city, on the Mount of Olives, okay? Um, this, again, is, is a, um, a vision of God abandoning Jerusalem. Now, here's the interesting thing. God here makes this promise that he's going to do something new, that there will be a return to the land, that there will be a cleansing, and as we'll see at the end of Ezekiel, there's going to be a whole new temple as well. But what's interesting is when Nehemiah and Ezra and the people of their day, after the 70 years of Babylon, after the rule of Babylon and the beginning of the Persian Empire, given permission to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the city walls, rebuild the temple. When all of that goes down, they build a new temple. But unlike the tabernacle where the presence of God fills it, and unlike Solomon's temple where the presence of God fills it, a description of that happening doesn't exist. And it's not until we get to the New Testament in the Gospel of John that we find out why. It's because God's got a new temple, right? And so this is what John tells us in the introduction to Jesus' ministry. It says that the word that was with God and was God has become flesh and tabernacled among us. That's, he, he uses a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew term there. Has made his tent among us and we beheld his glory. And what does Jesus say throughout chapter, or John in John chapter 3? Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again. And what does he tell the woman in Samaria in John chapter 4? There's coming a time where they will neither worship here nor there, but those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. 
And so when we get to Paul, he says, God does have a new temple and it's you. You are the temple of the living God. Living stone by living stone being put, to, put together as a house for God. Okay, um, but, but effectively, the glory does return to the temple. It walks in and it makes a whip. and It drives out those who are marketeering there. And then that glory comes outside the city and is crucified on a cross. All of that is in the flow of this story, and we'll actually deal with some more of it as we move forward, but let's finish here. So suddenly he finds himself again carried back to Chaldea to the exiles. Verse 24 says, Then the vision that I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. And so here they get their answer, and their answer is one of judgment for Jerusalem, but it's also one of hope for them. They haven't been discarded. They aren't irrelevant to God's plan. In fact, they are the, um, the hotbed, hotbed, the petri dish of God's new plan, the place where he's going to do a new thing. And he'll bring them back to the land, and he'll graciously install them back in it, and then he'll give them the new covenant. Okay? So let's finish there for tonight, and let's pray. Father, we can trace that line of the temple even further into the book of Revelation. When we get to the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth, John tells us explicitly, and there was no temple, for the Father and the Lamb were in the midst of the people. And strangely enough, the holy of holies dimensions, which were cubic in the tabernacle and in the temple, have now been culminated in a cubic city where the presence of God dwells fully in the midst of his community with no barriers, with no division, with no danger of death because sin will have finally and fully be dealt with. And we thank you, Lord, that the tabernacle gave us a picture of what that would be like, but you gave us something greater. You came and tabernacled among us, and now you're making a new temple in us, and one day you will be in our midst in such a way that we will be the place where God dwells, a people who love him and are loved by him. We ask, Lord, that you would instill in us that unshakable hope that would make the appeals of all other idols and all other foolishness uh, just pale in comparison to what we already have. You. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.